So, kids are going to be with us this morning. I want to welcome you to White Oak. Um, from many of the women at Women's Retreat, I was told to say greetings and hello. Um, I, my wife and my mom and my sister and then a lot of my friends are all at Ladies Retreat this weekend. And so I've just been chilling. I've been doing the bachelor thing this weekend, which was pretty cool. Got to hang out, relax, and all those types of things. But if you have a Bible this morning, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. That's where we're going to be. Continue our series in Ephesians. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen. And the, the title of the sermon this morning is, is real simple. The title of the sermon is that God's love changes everything. Ultimately, God's love, when we realize that he has loved us, it changes every single thing about us. God's love in your life changes everything about your life. You see, it changes the way that we think. It changes the things that we do. God's love changes the the values that we have. God's love changes the people that we choose to love. God's love uh, changes everything that we think about ourselves. God's love changes everything. Imagine this. Imagine after the service this morning... And I might actually do this, so you better be listening up. Imagine after the service this morning, um, I decide to, when I'm, when I'm greeting one of you as you leave, I like pull out of my pocket $50 million and I give it to you. Imagine I did that. And I might even do that after the service, okay? So you better be, you better say bye to me after the service. Imagine I gave you $50 million. I have one question for you. Would it be easier for you to love me if I gave you $50 million? Yes or No. Conf- no, no, real money, not Confederate money, real money. Real American currency. Would it be easier for you to love me if I gave you $50 million? Would it be easier for you to do something that I asked you to do if I gave you $50 million? Yes or no? I mean, depending on what it, what it is, but yeah, it'd be a little bit easier, wouldn't it, right? And... As we read Ephesians 5 today, a lot like last week, we're really tempted to read this and see a bunch of rules and say, okay, I've got to do all these things. All right, he's going to talk about uh, not coveting and not being sexually immoral. He's going to list all these things, right? And we're real quick going to be like, all right, I've got to take notes, and I just can't do these certain things. And that's all we're going to think. But you see, in, in the Christian faith, it's not like that. Because what we're going to see is if you miss verses 1 and 2 of this text this morning, you will immediately go to legalism. And what you have to think about and the way that you have to approach the Christian life is you have to look at the cross. You have to look at how much God loves you. And then you simply just have to respond to that, right? It's like the guy that gives you $50 million. You just have to literally receive that money and begin living in light of how much you have been given. And I think the Christian life becomes really hard when we try to keep a bunch of rules while not realizing how much God loves us. And the Christian life, the reason why it's different than other worldviews, other religions, other ideas, is because it's not just a set of morality. The Christian life is all about the gospel. The Christian life is all about the reality that God loves us first, and all we have to do is see this love and, and, and receive the love, and then we respond to God's love. 
And so we're going to read a really long text this morning. It's 21 verses. But the two key verses I want you to key in on are the first two verses, okay? So stand with me this morning. We're going to read Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, right? Verses 5 through 21. I mean, 1 through 21. But really keying in on verses 1 and 2. Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't have it, it'll be up here on the screen for you. Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is, who is covetous, covet, covet, I knew it earlier, <laughs> that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. may be seated. Verse 1, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. Paul begins this whole thing by saying, look, you are beloved children of God and Christ has loved you. Before God ever asks you to change anything in your life, before God ever asks anything of you, what does God do? God loves you. And, and I think sometimes we think that, that love is an oversimplification of the Christian life, but really it's all about love, isn't it? I mean, that, that's really like the core essence of everything, is being able to love God and love people the way that God loves us. You see, if you miss verses 1 and 2, where, where you see how God loves you, you'll miss everything. I mean, if you try to maintain a proper sexual ethic or you try not to lie and you try to not do all these things just because you think they're wrong and you're, you're trying real hard and you're trying to be a good person, like, that's a horrible way to live, right? Just trying to keep a bunch of rules because they're rules that you're supposed to keep. 
But what about the person who realizes how much God loves them? And then they live their whole life in response to God's love. Uh, growing up, I had the, um, the privilege of being raised by parents who were really good with money. And from the time I was really little, my parents instilled in me, um, I would say, a, a good way to handle your money. And in our house, like neither of my parents ever made a whole, whole lot of money, but we always had everything we needed, and we got to do you know, kind of cool things. We'd go on vacations and things like that. And my parents were really good at like basically like kind of controlling our finances. Every time we went out to eat, we were never allowed to have a soft drink because they would see that as like a waste of money, right? Because you have to eat, but if you buy a soft drink, you're, you're paying more money and you're being less healthy. So they, they viewed that as unwise. I've not necessarily adopted that principle. I, I will be honest about that. I, I like buying soft drinks. But, but they were really good with money, right? And I had other, other friends and people that I grew up around, and I remember going to their houses, and I could sense oftentimes kind of like a stress of money. Like, like they, the, maybe the, their parents weren't as good with their money, and there was stress and there was anxiety. And I have heard that, that the greatest strain on any marriage is financial stress. And I, I, I mean, I've seen that. I've experienced I mean, that, that's a huge stress on a lot of people. And so growing up in that environment, I saw how, how wonderful of a home it was when people were wise with their money. And so when I got to be 18 years old, I, all I had to do was simply begin adopting those principles and applying them to my life. Like, I remember my mom, she helped me begin building my credit when I was 18 years old. So by the time I was 24 years old, I was able to buy a house, even though I didn't make all that much money. She helped me do all these things. And, and to this day, I try my best to be very good with my money, but not because I'm super wise, right? Or not because I'm the most gifted person with money. All I had to do was see the way that my parents handled money and begin applying that to my personal life. And when it comes to God's love, all you have to do is see what God has done. You see the way that God loves the poor, we see the way that God loves the, the widow and the orphan. We see the way that, that God loves his people by giving them community. And we say, wow, that's really awesome. God really loves people. He really knows how to love. We look at that, and then we begin to apply that to our personal life. Uh, in the first century, right when uh, the church began, Christians became known as the leaders in two areas in society. They were leaders in adoption, and they were leaders in orphan care. And what happened was back in Jesus' day, um, and this is hard for us to understand today because we're in such a different culture, kids were like worth nothing. Kids were, were, were so low in society that usually, and this is really hard for us to imagine, but this was reality back in Jesus' day. Oftentimes, if a girl was born to a family, the family wouldn't want her because she couldn't make money, she couldn't do much for the family. And so oftentimes, if a girl was born to a family, they would basically take her and maybe go down to the local trash dump, and they would set her on top of the trash dump. Or maybe if a little boy was born, but he was disabled, and they didn't feel like he was going to be able to help out the family very much, they would literally take the little boy into the wilderness, and they just leave him. Another common way that they would get rid of kids is um, they would tie a millstone around their neck, and they would just drop them in the ocean. And when Jesus came, there's a story in the Bible of a bunch of kids trying to approach Jesus. And the disciples are trying to keep the kids away from Jesus, right? Like, no, 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 this is God. The kids, kids these lowly kids in society, they can't just come to Jesus. And that's when he has the famous line. He says, no, 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 let the kids come to me. Jesus revolutionized the way that we look at kids. 
Jesus valued little children more than the common people in Rome during his time. And so when the church begins, they're like, well, we saw how Jesus loved children. We saw how Jesus took care of the orphan. And so now the church begins literally in response to God's love. They become the leaders in adoption and orphan care. Oh, there's a little girl over there on the trash heap. We'll, we'll take her. Oh, there's a, there's a disabled boy just sitting in the forest because nobody wants him. We'll take him. Oh, oh you're going you're gonna to take that little girl and you're going to drop her in the ocean? We'll, we'll take her. And the church began adopting children. The church began taking in orphans. And it's so cool. There are people in this church right now who are literally in the adoption process. I mean, it's hard to imagine something more gospel-centered than adopting a child who is not naturally born to your family. It is so beautiful. So the church begins adopting all these kids. And then it's funny because the adopted kids, as they were loved by people, as they were taken in by people, like, well, well, well our parents adopted us. Now we're going to go adopt other people. You see, that's how the world changes. When people are really loved by God and they really realize how loved they are and people are literally Jesus with skin to them and they're like, well, that person really loved me. Now I'm going to really love them. And I honestly, I'm encouraged. I really believe in the church, even today in America, there is a huge move in the, in the American Christian church of, of becoming the leaders in adoption again. I think this is a beautiful thing. But it, it's not about saying, well, adoption is a good, moral, virtuous thing. It's about saying, look at how Jesus has loved the orphan. Look how he's loved the widow. Look how he's loved the kid that wasn't loved. And then responding to that with our entire lives. They say that you will oftentimes treat other people the way that you've been treated. And I don't have any hard statistics on me at the moment, but I've read tons of stories where they say that if you were abused as a child growing up, you are more likely to be an abuser as you get older. They say that if you grew up without a father, you are statistically more likely to leave your children. And, and, and what they say is that the way that you're treated, even if you have this, this complete hatred of the way it was, somehow it's just what you know. And so Paul says, look, before I ask you to do anything, before I, I call you to a new life, what you have to realize is simply this, that God loves you. And he does. And then in verse 3, he goes on. I'm not going to read all of it, but he talks about being sexually immoral. He talks about how we shouldn't covet. He says we should not be impure. We should not, um, we should not be a part of darkness in the world. Why? Because God is light. And so, so we live in response to God's love, but we also live in response to God's light. But I'm going to pause for one second. I'm going to take a time out. And I want to make one thing very clear. I think this, is, this will help. God is holy. Listen to me. Everyone listen to me. God is holy. God is perfect. Listen to me. Everyone listen to me. Let, let, let's focus. Let's slow down for a second. God is pure. 
God is without sin. God is everything that he needs to be. He is the standard of every good singular concept in your mind. He is the epitome of it. God is holy. God is without darkness. God has no faults, and God is the beginning of everything. And how do I phrase this? He's the eternal end of everything. God has always been, try to wrap your mind around this, God has always been, and he will never not be. God is holy. Now let's resume the sermon. Now how do we live in light of that? We talked about this last week. The sermon last week and this week are very, are very, very similar. Uh, he uses the illustration at the end of four of putting on the new self. And, and today in Ephesians 5, he uses the illustration of light. But it's like God's doing a wonderful work in your life and God is perfect and God is holy and God is good. And then we try to like kind of drag our sin into that, right? If God is holy, pure, if he's always telling the truth, if he's always upright, if God is, not only does God have everything, but he's totally content in who he is, and he's perfect, and he's holy, and he's, I mean, he's all these things, and then we serve that God, and the question becomes, how do we respond? In First Peter, it says, but he who has called you is holy. So God calls us, and he's holy. You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I holy. And then in Ephesians 5 verse 8 it says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Personal holiness is a response ultimately to God's holiness. And you'll notice um, that a lot of times in the Bible, it, it equates holiness with kind of your sexual ethic, right? It, it, it brings those two things together. And, and holiness is not just about maintaining a proper sexual ethic. But I will say this. The way that we live our lives sexually has so much of an impact for the trajectory of our life. Um, I, I've said this before, kind of for a living, I... I I talk with people who have made mistakes, and by God's grace, when we repent, it doesn't matter. God loves us no matter what. We make mistakes all the time. I make them, you make them. But I've never sat across the table from someone who said, you know what, I really did things God's way, and everything was horrible. I'm waiting for that conversation. And when it comes to sex, it's such an influential thing in our lives, and we don't talk about it a lot, and then we wonder why people kind of get off track. We, we, we don't talk about it. We don't mention it. And then we wonder why our kids are raised not really knowing how to live and how not to live. And you know what's really funny, right? Because I'll be honest with you. You say, well, what is God's plan for sex? Because God's not prude. God created sex, right? He's not, he's not prude. But what is God's plan for, for, for sexual ethics? It's, it's one man, one woman, in a marital covenant relationship for life. That's God's plan. And you say, well, that's really narrow-minded. Yeah, it is. It, it's narrow-minded. And, and, and I think as a church, 
I think we have to stop trying to, to backtrack. God's plan is narrow-minded. It's like playing basketball, right? Like there's, the only way you score in basketball is by putting the ball in the hoop, right? Is that, that narrow-minded? Yes. But that's the only way that it works. I mean, it's like, how do you get paid? Well, you get paid by doing your job. Well, it's narrow-minded. Well, yeah, but that's, that's, that's the way that it is. And it's funny, we look at the Bible and we think, oh, the Bible's so outdated, right? That's what people are, the Bible's so outdated. And what they don't realize is that Ephesus was a much more sexualized culture than we live in today. Paul is not writing here to a bunch of, you know, backwoods, rural, conservative, homeschool Baptist people. That's not what he's writing to. He's not writing to the most conservative, you know, they, they, they completely clothe them. I mean, he's not writing to those kinds of people. He's writing to a Gentile audience that is way, way more progressive than we are today. And it's not about, like, what is okay and what is not okay. It's about what is holy. And I think what we don't realize is that God wants every single person in this room to flourish. And God will set up the guardrails in your life that you will flourish. I, uh, I live kind of close to Pinemont and Antoine here, right down the street. And I don't know what it is about Pinemont and Antoine, but there's like, it's like stray dog central, right? Um, I, I, many of you know, I've used this in an, an illustration. In the past six months, I think we've, we've housed about two different stray dogs. And I was driving down the street the other day, and I saw this like stray dog, right? And I always feel so bad because I love dogs. I'm a new dog lover. I grew up not liking dogs. My wife has converted me. I absolutely love dogs now. I'm a huge dog advocate. Um, I donate to all the infomercials that with the really sad music, or at least I try to, you know. Um, I love dogs. And I'm driving down the street, and I see this stray dog, and it's like the typical really sad stray dog. I mean, he's got like, it's like I'm 50 feet away, but I can tell he has fleas. It's that bad. And it, his hair is all messed up, and you can tell it's like he's, he's missing half of the fur that should be on his body. And, and you can see his, his ribs because he, he's not really eating. And, and so you can see his ribs. He's got fleas. He has, doesn't have half of his hair. And then he's like limping because his, his back right leg isn't working properly. He probably got into a fight or something. And this dog just looks horrible. And then he's running around on Antoine, right? So this guy, it's about to be over for him. I'm, I'm feeling sad for this dog. And as I'm looking at him, I'm thinking this. That dog is completely free. That dog has no master. That dog does whatever he wants to do, but he's lonely. He's hurting. He's been abused. He, he willfully just walks into a bunch of messes his whole life because there's no one there to tell him that he loves him. And then I went from looking at that, and I got home, and then I saw my dog, Bo. And I have a picture of Bo up here. A lot of you know Bo. That's my dog. Say it all a little bit louder. Make, make me feel good. Aww. And it's funny because as dog owners, House and I, we're, we're pretty strict parents, you know. We, we, we tell him what to do. We control how much he eats. We tell him, no, you're not allowed to run down to Antoine. We love him and we help him and we make sure he doesn't have fleas. 
and, and you see that his coat is really nice because my wife is really good at taking care of him. She cleans him. We get him, we get him a, a haircut or whatever they call it occasionally. He's happy. He's healthy. I'm teaching him how to fight, so I wrestle with him a lot. And, and Bo is not free. Bo has a master, and it's me. God's entrusted this beautiful dog to me. I'm honored. And I think in our, our Western world, we have this mindset that, that life will be really good when we're completely free, when, when there's no rules, when we can do whatever we want to do, when no one's in control of us. We live in a country that was founded upon rebellion, right? We live in a country that was founded upon, we thought that we were getting taken advantage of, so we got into a war, we fought off the bad guys, and then every time, all everyone's ever talking about is, I don't want anyone telling me what to do. That's like the world that we live in. But the beautiful thing about God is that he's a master of our lives that loves us. And, and every rule that God has, like everything you read in Ephesians 5, he says, don't covet, don't be impure, he says, don't be sexually immoral. He gives us all these guardrails in our life, not because he wants to control everything we do, but because he loves us and because ultimately humans flourish when they are under the authority of a loving God. And then in verse 6, he talks about, let no one deceive you with empty words, kind of saying the same idea. And I think a lot of the stuff that we listen to today is just empty words. I've never met one person in my life who's like, Oprah changed my life. I've never heard anybody say that, right? But like tons of people listen to her, and they listen to her, and it it sounds good, and it feels good, and it it seems like it's really good wisdom, and and it's like there's words, and and they're there, and they they make sense, but it's like there doesn't usually result any life change from, from, from that kind of lingo, from that talk, from those kinds of shows, And it's like when Jesus meets the woman at the well and he says that I'll I'll give you living water. The words of scripture, the words of the Bible, the words of God, at times they, they may sound like every other word in the world, but when you begin applying those to your life, they're not empty. And then in accordance with that, in verse 15, Paul says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And this is the last thing. We live in response to God's love. We live in response to God's light and holiness. And we live in response to God's wisdom. This is like, I I absolutely love the concept of wisdom. Because wisdom is what helps us make decisions when the answer is not clear, right? Wisdom is what helps us decide whether or not we're going to take that job. Because in the Bible, it doesn't say, thou shalt not take this job at this place, right? It doesn't say that. Um, Sometimes my wife and I, when we're making decisions for our family or for our life, we just wish we'd go to the Bible and Leviticus, you know, whatever. And, okay, this is what we should do. This is the house we should buy. This is where we should live. You know, but, but you go to the Bible, and it's, it's like more general stuff, right? It's not really specific. And wisdom is this beautiful, mysterious gift of God to help us make decisions when it's not completely clear. And, and what Paul says is, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. He says, look, don't just live. 
like, like examine how you're living your life. Examine how you're spending every single heartbeat that God has given you. And this is one thing I've really noticed this, this past year, and I don't know why this idea keeps coming into my head, but we keep forgetting that like today is so important. We get so lulled to sleep by life and routines and by schedules that we forget that like today, this moment is so important in your life. The minutes that you've been given today, the heartbeat that is beating in your body right now, it is so valuable. And we just kind of get lulled to sleep and think, well, I'm just living my life and doing my thing. And today's important. And, and right now, if you're in church, you're, you're doing it the right way, right? You're, you're spending the heartbeat you've been given to hear God's word, to gather with the church. But when we leave here today, what will we do? Steve Jobs had this famous routine. Steve Jobs was the founder of Apple. Uh, he had this routine that he did. Because you look at a guy like that, and you're like, man, how do you do all the stuff this guy did, right? Because it's not just about being smart, but, but being able to, like, organize your life to where you produce fruit. And Steve Jobs had this same routine that he did every single day. And he actually attributed a lot of his success to this. Every morning he would get up and he would look in his bathroom mirror. And he would say to himself, literally out loud, he would say this. He would say, if today was the last day of my life, what would I do? I mean, I'm I'm paraphrasing, but that was the general concept. He would look himself in the face, in the mirror, and he'd say, if today was the last day of my life, what would I do? And, and to me in that concept, there's so much wisdom because Paul says the days are evil. Look carefully how you walk. Look carefully what you do. And we live our lives just getting so focused on all these exterior things. And I know we have to work jobs. We have to provide for, I mean, you know, if I had one more day to live, I'm providing for my family. That's a good thing to do, right? But people that accomplish great things in their life, they understand how valuable every single day of their life is. And God is wise. And God always makes the best use of time. And so we live in response to this. We say, well, God makes good use of his time. Therefore, I'm going to make good use of my days. In First Kings chapter 3, there's a story where God comes to King Solomon in a dream. And King Solomon was known as the, the wisest king of all. And he comes to Solomon in a dream and he says, uh, Solomon, what do you want? I'll give you whatever you want. And you know what Solomon's response is when God asks, what do you want? I mean, if God asked me, what do you want? I'd have like my list open and I'd be like, you know, this house, this car, you know, all this vacation. You know, I mean, I would be ready with a list if God asked me that. But Solomon is better than me. And so what he says in response to God asking him, what do you want? Solomon begins to like worship God in response. God says, you can have whatever you want. And Solomon's like, God, you have been so good to my family. You have blessed us. You have provided for us. You have, you have guarded the kingdom. You have provided everything that we need. He begins worshiping God. And then his one request that he asks, he goes, he goes, and after that he says, the one thing that I ask is that you give me wisdom that I could discern what is right and what is wrong. And God tells him, I will grant you that and so much more. Because you didn't ask for money. You didn't ask for stuff or for, for long life. You get it that in the end, those things don't really matter. You see, wisdom is being able to have a long-term perspective on everything, right? 
Wisdom is not making emotional choices. Wisdom is knowing how your decisions today will affect you in 10 years. Wisdom is looking at the eternal perspective and not just how you feel in the moment. And I honestly believe that when your heart truly wants God and just wants wisdom, that's how we find blessing. And I think one of the ways that wisdom helps us and it's really weird. I was going to use an illustration today about, this is really crazy. I was going to use an illustration about how I lost my wedding ring, um, and I found it this morning. And so I don't know if I'm, I'm still allowed to use this illustration or not, but I'm just going to do it anyway. Um, and it's really interesting. It was, it was almost one of those things, like, I got goosebumps. Like, I was thinking about this all week, how I was going to use this illustration. I lost my wedding ring, but luckily my wife really loves me, and so um, I'm here today. <laughs> I'm still alive, right? Uh, she's been very understanding about it. But I thought I lost my, my wedding ring. And I begin thinking about, why do I even wear a wedding ring? Because I'm about to go spend 50 to 100 bucks to buy a cheap one from James Avery, and I'm about to go spend money, and, you know, I'm always thinking about, well, I could spend my money better, and I get really analytical about it. I'm like, you know, why do we even wear wedding rings at all anyway, right? It's just a symbol. Like, I mean, it doesn't make me married. God doesn't say I'm married because I have a, like, what? like, you start questioning everything, Right? And then I began thinking about this text, about, about wisdom. And what I began to realize is, yes, you don't have to have a wedding ring. And, and yes, by law, you don't have to, um, you know, wear this and before God's eyes. But wearing a wedding ring is a very wise thing to do. Because it communicates to other people that you're married, which might keep you from certain tempting situations. It also, literally, every time I look at this ring, it reminds me of the day that I got married. And on the days when maybe things aren't going well and I'm feeling down, I, 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 always, I touch my ring a lot, and it, and it reminds me how blessed I am. And, and a lot of us, I think we're coming out of a, a time where we want everything to be, like, organic and natural. Our, our society is so obsessed with those things. But, but wisdom is, is, is knowing yourself, and wisdom is being able to craft your life in a way that it, it elevates your heart to God. It's like you don't have to read your Bible every morning. You don't. It, it's not required of you. You don't have to read it. You don't have to pray for a certain amount of time. But when you begin to realize that every time I pray in the morning and I spend at least like 10 minutes with God like in the Bible, I seem to like honor him more. I seem to love him more. What happens is we begin living in response to God's wisdom because he is wise. He makes good decisions. And now I begin to craft my life and not say, well, I shouldn't have to do this or I shouldn't have to do that. We just simply begin doing everything we can to love God more. Wisdom is knowing yourself. And so in close, let's let God's love change everything in your life. And I want to close by doing a simple thing here really quick. Um, you don't have to, but if you would do me a favor, um, close your eyes for me. I'm going to invite the band back on stage at this time. I, I really want to drive this home. We've been talking about how God's love changes everything in our life. And give me one minute, okay? Give, give, me, give me one minute. Close your eyes for me. And I just want to speak truth to you. I want to speak the most truest statements in existence. And that I want you to respond with your life. So with every eye closed, I just want to tell you this this morning. 
God loves you. Yes, you. God loves you so much. Jesus, the Son of God, died for you. With your eyes closed. God loves you and Jesus died for you. Just think about that. Like take two seconds and really think about that for one time. Like don't think about anything else. That Jesus died for you. And he died so that you would no longer have to live that same old life. Sinful, depressing, aimless. But so that you could awake. God is holy. God loves you. And now we respond. God, we we pray to you this morning. And God, we give you our lives. God, we, we give you every single thing that we do. Every every heartbeat that you give us, God. We give it right back to you. God, lead us this morning to follow you more. Lead us to your truth and to your goodness. And as we sing this song as the church, I pray we would respond with our lives. We ask all these things in the perfect, holy name of God. Amen. Would you stand with us at this time?